My Social Security payroll contribution will go up, as will Donald's, assuming he can't figure out how to get out of it. Uh, but what we want to do is to replenish the Social Security Trust Fund by making sure that we have sufficient resources. In a campaign of so many low blows, this one registered like a sucker punch. Donald Trump, during a presidential debate, talking right over Hillary Clinton to call her such a nasty woman. A year after the election, that phrase still crackles with power, and it's become the power to enrage and engage and to galvanize. Women's marches, women's protests, women wearing the red robes of The Handmaid's Tale to hearings on abortion restrictions, the t-shirts and the buttons and the bumper stickers that take ownership of the insult. And now with the double-barreled power of the Me Too campaign by women standing up to sexual harassment and sexual assault, Nasty Women is a force multiplier. A new collection of essays, Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America, is edited by Kate Harding and Samhita Mukhopadhyay, and it brings a multitude of women's voices to this new empowerment. As Harding makes it clear, these genies are not going back into that bottle. This term, nasty women, reminded me of the word Obamacare. It began as a Republican insult, and then Obama claimed it and owned it and was proud of it. Nasty women, straight out of Donald Trump, and now what is it? It's, well, you know, it's become kind of a rallying cry that means a lot of different things to different people. To us, we really um, were asked this question enough that Samita and I have sort of refined our answers to say that uh, it's about being opinionated and outspoken Um, and about saying the things that women often are not supposed to say that we're supposed to keep to ourselves and bury. As soon as Donald Trump said that to Hillary Clinton during the debate, I saw that and I was like, there is going to be a nasty woman shirt online by midnight tonight. And indeed there was. And I bought it. (laughs) Um, And uh, It just seemed immediately like that was going to be ripe for reclamation. Was that feeling always out there and it just needed a label? I think it was, but I think a lot of I think a lot of women maybe didn't even want to admit to themselves that the feeling was there. Um, or that it was as strong that we would have so much anger uh, that that came up after the election, Um, or or even in the preamble to the election, seeing the way that he treated her in that other debate where he just, like, stalked Hillary Clinton and stood behind her menacingly. Um, I think a lot of us had a very visceral reaction to that, and we're seeing that come out now with the Me Too campaign and women talking about their experiences of harassment and humiliation by powerful men. Uh, I think it's all of a piece that many of us recognize that behavior in Trump. We saw the mayor of San Juan, Puerto Rico, wearing a T-shirt that read nasty on television when she was pushing back against accusations from the Trump White House about her loyalty, her ability, her competence. Now, the Trump administration cannot handle the truth. They want to embellish it. They want to do a different story. Well, the story is not a good news story. It is a life and death story. And survival cannot be our new way of life. I think that um, that Mayor Cruz is a really interesting figure that we've seen come out of this horrible tragedy in Puerto Rico, compounded by the way that our government is 
is treating them. You know, she needs to be literally screaming, literally like saying people are dying, send us help. And that that is then seen as her being nasty, as her not kind of knowing her place. It's so frustrating to see the way she's treated and the way that people still act as though she shouldn't, she has no right to be so outspoken and so angry when literally her people are dying. What span of viewpoints and life experiences by the essayist did you want to get into this book? Well, we really, we wanted to make sure we had as many perspectives as we could get. Uh, We didn't want it just to kind of come from our, our perspective. So we wanted to make sure that we spoke to some younger people who had been, you know, very moved by by Bernie and didn't feel themselves connecting as well with Hillary Clinton. I went to the Women's March in D.C., and it was a profoundly transformative experience for me. But there were lots of people who felt very alienated by the march. Uh, Ijoma Oluo, a writer who's not in the book, but who watched that march at home and just sobbed because she said, you know, you're all out there in the streets for what might happen to you, but we've been begging you to join us in the streets about what is happening to us. So I think people are coming at this from so many different angles. We have uh, Mary Catherine Nagel is in the book. She's a member of the Cherokee Nation. And, uh, you know, not to oversimplify her essay, but the gist is essentially, look, we survived Andrew Jackson, you're going to survive Trump, but it's going to be hard and terrible. One essay in the book points out the paradox that women were called out for having gender loyalty in this election, but also for not having gender loyalty. It's it's such a clear case of you can't win, and especially, I mean, I think we would have seen this with any woman in that role, but it's just that much more clear with Hillary Clinton, for those of us who are old enough to remember the 90s, where she was painted as this radical left-wing woman who was going to destabilize the centrist Democratic Party to, in the last election year, she was painted as, and even in 2008, painted as the establishment, painted as too much of a centrist, not enough of a progressive. I think it's not hard for us to get behind uh, a white man in a suit still as much as we would like to say that we have progressed beyond that. You know, a, a big thing that was going around a lot was guys saying, oh, I'm not sexist. I would vote for Elizabeth Warren in a heartbeat. And then Elizabeth Warren endorsed Hillary Clinton. And those same guys were screaming like, oh, my gosh, she's a traitor. She's the establishment. She's she's not one of us like that she was. And you look at Kamala Harris, who is this, you know, multiracial woman and powerhouse politician. But because she has a history as a prosecutor, and, and I'm not saying there aren't things in that history that we shouldn't judge, But she is suddenly getting ripped apart by the left as people talk more and more about her as a potential candidate. I just feel like we are demanding purity of women candidates that we don't demand from men. It feels like the way that we've made racist such a dirty word that people will openly go to a white supremacist rally but then still object if you refer to them, characterize them as racist. And I feel like people are reacting the same way to the word sexist. So <laughs> I guess it's a good thing that people don't want to be labeled as sexist, that we consider it a bad thing. But when people won't even listen to women and people who have been living in female bodies, when we try to tell you, no, this is sexism, you have a super shallow understanding of it. We're trying to explain to you how it actually operates and how it actually holds back women in a million subtle ways. And people say, no, 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 no. I'm a man. I know that's not it. It's not sexism. Let's talk about what has happened since 
maybe an energy that wasn't even present on Hillary Clinton's behalf during the campaign is there now. I think a lot of people really were jogged out of complacency by by Trump's election. Um, And there is this massive energy and the sense that what we're hearing from older women, especially all the time, is, you know what, I've been a good girl and kept my mouth shut all the time, all my life, and that ends now. And I think that's another version of kind of reclaiming that nasty woman label. I think history will remember it as as part of Hillary's legacy, for sure, that people, uh, especially women, are galvanized in a way that I've never seen in many years of being a, a feminist writer and activist. And a lot more men, too, are really waking up to how prevalent it is and ready to join us in the fight. One essay in the book challenges some of what it calls these gendered strategies, postcards, speeches to sympathetic audiences. Now is not the time to be conciliatory. We must be prepared to rebel and disobey to risk physical harm and imprisonment. This sounds like the suffrage movement in England 100 years ago. Are American women ready to put themselves on the line like this? You know, I am someone who has led quite a comfortable life and is, you know, I'm not the person who's going to say we got to throw a brick. But I wanted to make sure that that perspective was in the book because I think it's important to be considering all facets of this. I do think that the way the Women's March was praised for being nonviolent says a lot about how we judge these other movements that are for people's lives and for people's bodies. Black Lives Matter is literally reacting to people being gunned down in the street by state actors for no reason. And to then criticize them for being imperfectly polite seems like maybe you actually don't care that much about things changing there. Who do you think are the leaders in this new revived sense of the women's movement, whether it's you know poor working women, whether it's black and Latinos? We see the congresswoman, Congressman Wilson from Florida, who recently has a a lot of attention for speaking out on behalf of the widow of a service member killed and the controversy over the the Donald Trump call, President Trump's call to her. And the saddest part of this, he kept referring to LaDavid as your guy. He never called his name. It was almost as if he forgot his name. And that's what hurt the mother so badly, the wife. She said he doesn't even know his name. Didn't say what that congresswoman said. Didn't say it at all. She knows it. And she now is not saying it. I did not say what she said. And uh, I'd like her to make the statement again, because I did not say what she said. I had a very nice conversation with the woman, with the wife, who sounded like a lovely woman. Did not say what the congresswoman said. And most people aren't too surprised to hear that. What is the truth, Mr. President? These aren't necessarily going to be the next candidate for president, but who are these women and what are they doing? I think what we're seeing now is a movement that is largely leaderless, which is why you see people like Congresswoman Wilson emerging. Maxine Waters is a Los Angeles congresswoman. She's been out there doing the work for decades, and now she's become a bit of a darling of the left because she is there speaking truth to power. And then I think you have the people who organized the Women's March. I think you have people who that has become kind of a brand and a movement where there are groups all over the country working now. I think the Indivisible movement, they've got a national network. 
then you have groups that have been around forever where you've got your NARAL, your Planned Parenthood, who have the experience with lobbying, protesting, um, and then newer groups like Repro Action, and obviously Black Lives Matter, too, which was started by queer women of color, uh, even though it's become this enormous movement and people don't necessarily think in terms of who were these, these women who started it. In Arlo Guthrie's ballad, Alice's Restaurant, at one point he says, I'm not proud or tired. I've been singing the song now for 25 minutes. I could sing it for another 25 minutes. I'm not proud <laughs> or tired. Is there the energy to keep this up for three or seven more years? I think... Yes, would be the short answer, because I think there are enough of us now who are fired up that some of us can take the rest we need to take and other people will keep it moving. Uh, I don't think it's on just a few people or just a few groups backs anymore. I mean, it is exhausting, that said. Like, I don't want to sugarcoat how tiring and frustrating it is and how much that, you know, deliberate on their part in terms of fomenting this chaos that's just Every day there's something that would have been a six-week news cycle before this presidency. But I think as long as there are so many of us who want to fight back and who don't want to have our rights and our freedoms taken away by this authoritarian government, uh, we will keep it going and we will resist as long as it takes. Kate Harding, one of the editors of the book Nasty Women, Feminism, Resistance, and Revolution in Trump's America. Thank you. Thank you so much, Pat. Pat Morrison Asks is produced for the Los Angeles Times by Pat Morrison. It's engineered by Tim French and Todd G. Levin and edited by Levin. The audio moments are from YouTube and from Arlo Guthrie's Alice's Restaurant on the Warner Brothers label. Subscribe to Pat Morrison Asks and never miss a podcast. I am Pat Morrison.